Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and CEO of Mind Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the Mind Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Adam Ghazali is a professor in neurology, physiology, and psychiatry at the UC San Francisco and the founding director of the Neuroscience Imaging Center, Neuroscape Lab, and the Ghazali Lab. His lab explores mechanisms of neuroplasticity and designs, develops and validates new technologies to optimize cognitive abilities via engagement with closed-loop systems using custom-designed video games. Yes, folks, we said video games. Neurofeedback and transcranial electrical stimulation. He's filed multiple patents based on his research, authored over 100 scientific articles, and delivered over 450 invited presentations around the world. Quite simply, Adam is one of the best and brightest minds when it comes to all things cognition, specifically using technology as an advantage to improve cognition as we age, specifically through video games. Adam, welcome. Thank you for having me here. So explain what you do. <laughs> Most people are gonna be like, what? That's, that's a thing? Yeah, I, I can understand why they'd react to that um, in such a way. So I am uh, an MD, PhD. I'm a neuroscientist and a neurologist, and I followed a pretty typical tradition for someone that uh, combines those fields. So I studied uh, the human brain over the last several decades at, at UCSF. And UC you like just Berkeley. got out of school. If you're an MD, PhD, it's like yeah, you just got a, out like a year ago. It was a long ride. It was a long ride. I've actually... Now I've been on faculty at, at University of California, San Francisco for the last 13 years. But uh, prior to that, it was 15 years of training uh, in a row a- after high school. So it was, it was a long run um, after college, actually, 18 years after wow. high school. Yes. So long, long time. And, um, you know, my, my work started as an uh, exploration to understand how the human brain is sensitive uh, to interference, how it's vulnerable in many ways. Uh, by distractions, uh, multitasking, what I call interference. And I studied that by recording brain activity using both functional imaging, uh, MRI, as well as EEG recordings. And we found that people's brains, despite the fact that they might feel that they're performing at a high level, are really very sensitive to interference effects. And that's what started my research, my independent research career as a faculty member. And what I do now is sort of turn that story around. Instead of just looking at how our brains are vulnerable, I try to come up with unique approaches to improving how our brains function. And to do that, I use technology, including things like video games and virtual reality. That's what and you're brain known for. It's like the video games guy. That's what I'm known for. It wasn't until recently that that was true. <laughs> but yes, that is is sort of where where uh, I capture people's imagination the most now of, of turning essentially video games into medicine. I love that. And so you wrote this phenomenal piece that, that everyone should read, but it's a long piece, so you've got to get ready, get, get, get comfortable. 
the cognition crisis. Technology is the cause and the solution. That title just, when I saw that, I was like, ooh. <laughs> it's the double-edged sword title. <laughs> so, so talk more about that piece. Yeah, so that piece has been something that I have been essentially working on for the last five years um, on stages around the world, presenting my perspective on the human brain and how technology has challenged us at a very fundamental level, which was really ma the main focus of a book I wrote called The Distracted Mind. But I became also very interested in the, in the promise of technology, its potential not even to just be neutral and not harm us, which is a, a question in itself, but to actually help us. And uh, when I talk to people about their views on how we are faring as a species, some people will really sort of focus on the fact that we have rise in depression and anxiety, which is true, or they may focus on dementia and the impairment we have with an increasing age of our population, or they might be, we're all distracted, we have no attention anymore. And I started realizing that this is actually pieces of a bigger story, a story about the human mind, um, that they're all telling um, the same story, that we have a crisis right now that hasn't been recognized in its full breadth, and that crisis is of our minds, our cognition, that we're not evolving how we think and feel, um, how we have compassion and empathy, how we uh, attend and perceive, and um, technology is challenging that, and we're not, we're not putting it up there as a priority, as a global priority with other pressing uh, challenges we have, like the one affecting our climate right now. And until we wrap our heads around this as a problem, which I have not seen done yet, and say this is a global challenge, this is a grand challenge we should be addressing, we should be thinking better at a higher level. Because if we can't really focus our attention in a sustained manner, and we can't make creative, future-oriented, wiser decisions, then we'll never, ever deal with other complex challenges like climate change. And so that's really, in a nutshell, you know, what I feel is going on, that we have a crisis of our minds, and it hasn't really been um, distilled, uh, and we haven't addressed it. So what are the main culprits? Is it text messaging? Is it social media? Are there specific platforms? Is it the mobile phone? Is it all of the above? Is it... Yeah, like is it all these things? Like, what, what, what if you had to identify? I, I know there's no like one thing that's evil, so so to speak. Right. You know, in in, in some ways, like so. I, I want to couch my comments first by saying that it's not all due to technology. There's lots of other changes in society and age. The increasing age of our population is also a big influence on changes in cognition over time. The other thing that I hope we could spend a little time on is that not all the fault lies on technology, that our education and our medical system hasn't also been flexible in dealing with a changing environment like technology has induced and helped us to manage our, um, our brains and our minds in the context of a changing world. So there's lots of problems in the system. And, but, you know, technology is certainly uh, one of them. And when I say technology, I mean very clearly information technology. And that's why it's really hard to distill who's the main you know, bad guy in the room? Is it social media? Is it texting? Is it video games? Is it the internet or the fact that we have phones in our pockets? It's really all of it. Um, and the reason why is because at our very core, we're information-seeking creatures. Um, we are rewarded for information in much the same way that other animals are rewarded by uh, food and, and for survival. And we 
are constantly seeking information and the accessibility of it now um, is really the challenge. The fact that it is in our pocket. So I guess mobile phones are going to sort of lead the way in my thinking. Um, but if mobile phones didn't give you much more than the ability to talk to one person at a time as it used to, it really wouldn't be as troubling as its connection with everyone you know, or at least even to see what everyone you know is doing at every time. So it's really the combination of everything together, but it's the access, the unlimited access to technology, to information at all times that has created this burden on our minds that then impairs our cognition and then has a cascade effect throughout our lives where it impacts basically every way that we interact with the world around us. So that's the cause. So let's talk about what's the potential solution. I tend to think about potential solutions in two different categories. One is we have to figure out how to manage technology better so that we live with it in a healthier way, even the technology we have right now. And that's at the level of the technology companies themselves, which is starting to happen for them to recognize that whether intentionally or not, decisions were made along their pathway to success that have challenged people in, in many ways, especially young people. And I'm not going to you know, say, you know, place blame and say that it was intentional, that they were trying to purposely hijack our reward systems. But, you know, it, it, it is clear that eyeballs uh, lead to revenue and attention is important for that type of economy, especially an ad-based economy. Uh, but regardless of the cause, I think it's important, A, for the technology companies to recognize that when they are developing new products and solutions, somewhere early in that conversation, they should be considering is this going to hurt people? Is this going to be neutral? Is this going to help someone? And I don't think that they should, you know, say that we shouldn't make a profit because of this. I understand mm -hmm. how, how the system works, but it should be part of the conversation, and it hasn't been. And then the other part of the technology, sort of managing technology solution, is for people to take control over the technology and not feel like it's controlling you. And it took us a long time to really figure out the negative impacts of too much information. It's like it took us a long time to figure out the negative impacts of too much sun exposure or eating too much or even cigarettes. Yeah, I was going to say, like, we, <laughs> we, we in our wellness trends in 2018 said big tech is next big tobacco. Yeah, you know, it, we didn't really understand how dangerous tobacco was and cigarette smoking was at the beginning of, of you know, that, that industry. And, you know, once you figure it out and you understand and are well informed about how a certain type of interaction with something, whether it's sun or a type of food or a type of drug or a type of information and technology impacts you negatively, then you need to take control of it, which is easier said than done, like for all of those things. Sure. So first step is to be aware. And second step is to have a plan. <laughs> and you need a plan because you develop these habits that are very hard to break. You know, that habit could be as simple as, you know, in the 30 seconds that you wait for a light to change, you pull out your cell phone. You know, this constant need for information flowing into your brain. You have to break those cycles and take control over how you use technology. Just because it's juicy and tasty and fun doesn't mean you have to consume it all at the same time, right? The same applies to food. I often say that, you know, there's a very clear analogy between food and information information, that there's healthier food and more junk food, same thing with information. It also doesn't mean that you have to consume it all at the same time just because it tastes good. And so I think that that's, so I put that on one side. How do we manage technology better, both at the point of view from the technology companies and from the consumers? And the other side, which is a longer discussion, is 
how can we build stronger brains? How do we address the cognition crisis, not just by managing our environment, but managing our brains and our minds and improving how they function? So let's let's talk about both. I want to go back. So you're riding the elevator up with someone, and, and they ask what you do, and you tell them. They said, well, what do I need to do? How do I manage? So like, what's your quick elevator pitch to someone of how to manage technology in a daily basis? What does that look like? Yeah, so my quick pitch would be to start baby stepping into single tasking. Um, it would be like if you're going to train for a marathon, you don't start like you know running four miles a day. If you don't run it before, it's going to be horrible. You'll never do it again. You'll do it once. So... I, I said, you know, I'm just really telling you what I do. Sure. I don't consider myself a self-help guru, so I don't like to tell people what to do, but I'll tell you what I did. So basically, I have the same problems that everyone else does. You know, I love going on Facebook, and I feel the pull, my emails, like a treadmill. You know, I have the, all those same burdens. I don't sit some, on some mountain like a Luddite not using technology. So I feel the, the draw as well. And I'll say, okay, from 11 to 12, I'm going to single task. I'm going to work on this article that's time sensitive, that is a high quality, that needs to be, you know, a high quality stamp that it needs to be put on it. Now, the first time you set yourself an hour to do one thing, and that means shutting, quitting your email, putting your phone on airplane mode, no social media, nothing, closed door, you find that you just get anxious and bored pretty quickly because we're not used to that sustained focus. And so maybe you only go 10 minutes and then you take a break. But the, I, the point is don't take the break of going on your email and sure. social media because that's just a sinkhole. You ain't never come yeah. back from that for a long time. Sure. So take a break, like do some mindfulness, close your eyes, get some exposure to nature, maybe do some light exercise just for a minute and then get back in there and try to get through the hour. And then every day, increase the amount of time that you're focusing your attention in a sustained way. And what I found that it becomes more enjoyable, just like running a mile becomes more enjoyable when it was unbearable at the beginning. And then maybe set, you know, 10 to 11, I'm going to multitask away because I'm doing things that are low level, that are not critical, and that are really boring. And that it's more fun to like keep music on and switch over to Facebook after a while. Um, but learn how to take control over when you use it, as opposed to going through your day and just having technology lead you. So this is something that I feel, and I'm, I'm curious if, if what your thoughts on this. So for me personally, what, what you're saying is resonating, and I feel like I prefer like one method of communication We're online. Like there's some people here, it's like there's, there's text, there's email, there's Slack, there's messenger. Facebook, there's Messenger. And, I, I'm on a, and we're a media <laughs> company, so I'm on every platform, and I have to be. I need to know what's going on. But like if, to me, it's like I just choose one or, or maybe two two tops because i just can't yeah like it, have conversations all all those platforms are important but personally not to like it's one of the reasons i don't really love slack uh, it's like one place to look like do you think that's yeah I, I do i think you know everyone has their own sort of personality and what they feel like they could manage but streamlining your communications is going to be critical because the ultimate goal here is to take control right that's the goal is to not be led by it and if you have so many yeah. pings on you, it's like your phone just starts lighting up. Yeah, and then and, and that just you know turn off. You know, for the most part, I usually keep all notifications off um, on my phone, which was a big change. Um, sometimes I'll put it on like if I'm 
I was just with friends in Mexico City and everyone was using WhatsApp to keep in touch. And yeah. I was like, so I turned it on, the notification. It, it never was on before. I found like, oh, look, a friend from Australia had been pinging me for months. I didn't even know it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I try to take control over it. Use it when you need it. If you need to be, if you need notification, if something's going on with your significant other, then you get, get in touch with you, turn it on by all means, of course. But, you know, under most circumstances, I don't think you need to be pinged by six different sources when people randomly reach out to you. Sure. And let's go back. Let's segue into that, the, the, the longer answer, the, the, the bigger solution here to the yeah. cognitive crisis that we're facing and how you view it. Yeah, so the, the bigger picture is about the human mind itself. And it's helpful here to like take a step back, like a giant step back to like our evolutionary beginnings and understand what the brain is, what, what it does. Um, if you go back even to when we were single-cell creatures before we had brains, we really did two things, um, both of which were involved with the environment. We sensed it, we meaning like paramecium, single-celled organisms, and we responded to it. Toxins we moved away from, nutrients we moved towards. It was what we called the perception action cycle. And that's what led to survival and on and on. And our brains essentially really largely do that. It's still the majority of what we do. We sense and we respond. Now, as our brains evolved, especially the human brain, we put a pause in between perception and then response and action. And that's where we have decisions and goals that come into it. But for the most part, we cycle through interacting with an environment in this way. And that's how our brains evolved. Our environment has changed dramatically very, very recently in terms of our exposure and access to information. And along with that has created these burdens on us managing it and trying to accomplish our goals with so much incoming perceptual information. And we haven't really wrapped our heads around how that is changing us and how we might take steps to have stronger brains and stronger minds healthier minds that we could deal with the new world that our brains are cycling with. And so who, what are the systems that should be dealing with that, right? Dealing with a very different environment than we had 30 years ago, which undoubtedly is going to place a burden on our brains to adjust to. So we have two systems that should be dealing with it. Our education system, because that's what it does, right? It deals with the developing mind so that you have a healthier mind when you're an adult, right? That's more capable of interacting with high quality with the world around it. And then there's the medical system that deals with a mind when it's in trouble, right? When it's really suffering and needs to be fixed, so to speak. I would say that neither education or medical system in any way has been effectively improving how our brains function. So if you take a young person that might be suffering an attention deficit, uh, when it's not what they think is a clinical level, we don't even know about it. We don't assess cognition in young people unless we think they have a developmental challenge or some type of learning disability. We just don't assess it. We test them in other ways, but we don't really understand who is paying the best attention, who has the best working memory, who has the best emotional regulation, who experiences the most compassion and empathy. We have no idea. We don't even sample those things. Then once they re reach a level of disruption right. <laughs> that we do sample it, what do we do? We give them a drug, put them back in the classroom. That's essentially, so they went from the education system to the medical system. Now, the drugs that we treat uh, for like problems like attention, but this is broader, includes our memory challenges when we get older, and includes depression and anxiety. 
they're not selective for the neural networks in the brain that really underlie those systems. So we always have to increase our doses to very high levels to get the effects we want, and then we get pretty much just as many side effects as we do effects. And so for 60 years, our medical system has had this siloed approach to treatment that has relied on small molecules. A matter of fact, if you ask people randomly, which I've done many times, to describe what medicine is, some people say drugs, <laughs> which is amazing marketing, right? Because medicine's not drugs. Medicine's ways of improving our health when we're, you know, not doing as well as whatever would be normal. But it doesn't mean drugs. Drugs is just our almost our only system of approaching it. And so that's the root of the of why we're not dealing with it. That's what I really think about. How do we create new approaches to help our education and our medical system do a better job at improving the cognition of the human species? Because it's not doing a good job right now. So one of the things you're you're known for, we touched on earlier, it's this idea of video games as medication, which, you know, wow, people hear that. I said, that's really, that's interesting. Now, now I'm paying attention. So talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, this is, this is the interesting moment in a conversation um and that's why i like to do longer format things like this as opposed to like i did a five minute piece on bbc that it, like i hate so much i won't even it's impossible to, it. to do you in five minutes it's it just it doesn't work <laughs> because it's like you're saying the technology is challenging us but you build video games to help kids with adhd that's like what because <laughs> it, it's like and this is the double-edged sword part of it and i you know i feel like it's like that w way with everything in nature, um, there's always two sides to it. Even things that are generally healthy for you can be done in excess and become very unhealthy. And technology, despite it's challenging us so much, I think has an incredible opportunity, not just to not harm us, which we would hope is the minimal, but to actually help us. And so 10 years ago, I became interested in how we can improve attention abilities in older adults. Because for many years, I had sort of what I always describe as reporting the bad news. I've been studying older adults inside MRI scanners and showing that when we distracted them, and they had a goal like a memory goal, or we made the multitask they just their brains just fell apart. You know, they just couldn't do nearly as well. They so multitasking is like terrible. You know, no one multitasks very well because when you think you're multitasking, the networks in the brain are switching. We see this on MRIs, you know, functional MRI studies that we've done. With each switch, you pay a cost. You lose a little bit of the information details. Even if you're, you know, the sort of the peak level of doing that is around early 20s. And then it just declines throughout the lifespan. So no one does it perfectly, but it gets worse as we get older. And, and our ability to resist distraction is also not perfect. And then that gets worse as we get older. And so in 2008, 10 years ago, I said, how do we improve attention in older adults? Because they were really troubled by it. All of our participants in our research lab, like to them, it's not an academic question. Most of them are still trying to work or they, you know, older adults now are like teenagers they want to learn like musical instruments they want to go to spain and learn to speak spanish like there's very high level demands of the older adult population now right they don't retire and sit on a couch and just watch tv anymore that's just not the way it goes so we were seeing a lot of frustration because they noticed these shifts in their attention abilities which is very clear in the lab and so my first response as a neurologist was let's give them a pill 
because that's what we do. That's I went to med school. That's how we treat people. And, uh, you know, when we treat people with Alzheimer's disease, pretty much the only thing we do is give them a pill to try to really improve their attention and hope that has benefits on memory. But those benefits are very, very subtle, and they don't affect everyone equally, and they have side effects. Uh, we've even did some research with it. So the idea I had was to sort of go back to an ancient approach of improving attention. So if you think about the practices, you know, the contemplative ancient practices of meditation and mindfulness, they're essentially attention exercises. But at their core, what they are, they're an experience that someone engages with. And our brains respond to experience by modifying itself and improving its function in, in response to the experience. We call that plasticity. Now, we know that plasticity improves how our brains work. If we didn't, we wouldn't even have an education system to start with. It depends upon brains being plastic. Meditation, um, therapy, all of these are experiential treatments in my, my perspective. The problem with experiential treatments compared to pharmaceutical treatments that, that has a long list of problems, as I described, is that they're often not delivered in a reproducible manner. So you need you know, the better and the more expertise that your meditation leader has, the better experience you'll have. Same thing with a teacher or a therapist. And this has been a challenge for these amazing real-world practices because it's very hard to do the type of randomized controlled trials that regulatory agencies and medical professionals look for when prescribing something. So the idea I had was, could we sort of do a hybrid between what the pharmaceutical world has done and what like you know the meditation practices have done and take an experience but use technology to make it deliverable and consistently reproducible and testable just like it was a drug and so how do you create an experience that someone could interact with at a high enough level and deep enough engagement to change the brain and the idea i came up with was a video game so i i started taking notes <laughs> i started to have like 10 different questions when you're going so when you're talking about mindfulness and meditation, in your opinion, are all forms of meditation created equal? Are there other forms that are produce better results in your I wouldn't necessarily opinion? better. It's about, you know, it's the same thing with video games, which is such a complex co conversation. And I've had it many times with different audiences around the world. Um, you know, meditation and video games are similar in the fact that they're really genres. You know, there's many different types of meditations. There's many yeah. types of video games, just like there's many types of drugs and foods and sports. And so it's very hard to just wrap in, a, you know, one, um, you know, umbrella around it and say, this is what meditation does this is what video games do so you know some meditation is very focused on concentration right like concentrated focused meditation goes by many names but you know it's it's very often people's first exposure to meditation focus on the breath awareness of where your mind is recognizing that it has it has migrated from your breath and without judgment bringing it back right pretty right and like being as we talk about time and space and recognizing sitting with whatever it is you need to sit with for that moment before reacting. Exactly. So it's basically an exercise training program, an attention training program, right? right. That, that's what it is at its core. And there's different types of meditation. There's loving kindness sure. where the thoughts are more around compassion and empathy. There's more open meditation where you're just allowing your mind to go and just monitoring it. But concentrative meditation, focused meditation is, you know, a very clear example of an attention exercise to me. 
And so if you take even principles of meditation, which we have done now, and bring them into a technological solution where you could create very personalized, deliverable forms. So the reason we use video games as our platform of delivering an experience is because, A, you can use the software to make them adaptive, um, what we call closed-loop video games. So in, in 2008, we built a video game that no one had ever really created before. It was a video game that challenged you to multitask, not with the goal to make you better at multitasking, just because multitasking is, is really like impossible for our brains to do. It's like going into the gym and tackling something really challenging because you want to push yourself. Um, but we did it in a closed loop way, meaning that as you engage in the gameplay, we're recording your performance metrics essentially in real time and using that data to update the challenge and the rewards and feedback to you so that you get a completely personalized experience based on your own abilities. And so whether you're 60, healthy or 70 with Alzheimer's or a healthy seven-year-old or a seven-year-old with autism, you don't have to enter that information into the game uh, system. It just automatically finds where is the most favorable place to challenge you so that you are rewarded and get into a flow state and can engage with it. And what we showed was that when we created this game and had healthy older adults play it, we improved not just their ability to play the game, but their attention on a very different task, their sustained attention on a boring task, a vigilance task, and their working memory for faces significantly mm -hmm. compared to a control group. And we published this in Nature in 2013, and this became the explosion in my life and a lot of people's lives that were surrounded with mine of saying, wow, we took here a, an entertainment product at its very nature of video game. And through careful development of both the game, uh, the algorithms behind it, uh, and a very, very rigorous research study, we're able to move it out of that genre of entertainment into uh, a treatment tool that really improves attention. And now the goal has been to say, can this go the next level and reach the highest level of regulatory approval and become uh, a medicine and, and have doctors think about this video game in the same way that they would think about using a stimulant, just one with lower side effects. <laughs> and so that has been the goal and the journey over the last 10 years for me, from this very first video game idea to where we stand today, where now my lab turned into a research center called Neuroscape. Along the way, I started a company called Achille to move it into the world. And um, multiple trials, including a phase three trial in children. Um, so that is the most rigorous research study you can do. It's multiple sites. It's double-blind, randomized control. And we found that we were able to improve attention in children with ADHD. So we basically found the same result that we had found in older adults five years earlier in children suffering ADHD. And right now, we're in the process of having that game approved as a medical device, so a clinical treatment for children with ADHD, which would make wow. it the only non-drug treatment for ADHD. And of course, the first prescribable video game. And what it. we think of as, as the first digital medicine. So right now we have pharmaceutical medicines that deliver molecular treatments. This is a digital medicine that delivers an experiential treatment. So it's a new category, and we think that there'll be many other indications right behind it. I love that. So when you, when you start talking about medication and pharma, and when we talk about mindfulness and meditation, where my head was, I was like, hmm, I wonder what Adam thinks about 
psychedelics and I haven't read Michael Pollan's book, but curious your thoughts there as well as, you know, quote unquote, smart drugs, big thing in mm-hmm. the Valley right now. And then supplements. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I, I find those other domains really interesting, especially psychedelics. Um, I'm pretty focused now on, on this mission of taking technology into a domain that it's never been in before. And it, it's a big, it's a big challenge because it's not just video games. Uh, that's like the core, but then it's all the technology that surrounds it, like virtual reality and augmented reality and motion capture and then artificial intelligence. We bring all those things together. So I'm pretty busy yes. trying to do that, but I, <laughs> you know, so, and, and I also feel that I'm not ready to combine the things that we're doing that I just described to you, we have a lot of hurdles to overcome. Sure. Not just regulatory hurdles, but like, you know, a lot of parents are like, I don't like my kids playing video games. It's like, but I don't like my kids taking stimulants either. And so there's a lot to do. I mean, our insurance company is going to reimburse for a video game in the same way that they reimburse for Adderall. Like, there's a lot of challenges <laughs> in front of us. But I have to say, I am fascinated. Um, you know, I read Michael Pollan's uh, piece in the New Yorker Trip Treatment, and I haven't re- read his book yet, but. Um, I do know a lot of researchers like Stephen Ross in the field that are doing that's doing work on NYU and work on psilocybin as a treatment. And I'm following that field. I find it really fascinating. And uh, it disturbs me as many others how that research has been suppressed as no scientists like that concept. And one day, I, I know that they're not ready for my world, <laughs> just like I'm not really ready for that world yet, because it's sort of like one gigantic hurdle at a time. But you can imagine a future where we have a type of VR video game experience that's recording all of your data about how you're interacting with it from your emotional responses to your facial expressions, your heart rate, even your neural data, which is what something else they're working on, creating this environment and this experience to challenge you and help you manage things like depression and anxiety and attention challenges. And then you induce a small change with like, a psychedelic, let's say, to, a, to to bring it all to the next level. How would that interact? I don't know, but I think it's fascinating. You got your hands full. I got my hands full <laughs> right now, but I think it's part of my future. So I'm going to read you a quote that we love here uh, from your piece. Um, What's more, our constant engagement with technology interferes with the pursuit of other behaviors critical for maintaining a healthy mind, such as nature, nature exposure, physical movement, face-to-face contact, and restorative sleep. Its negative influence on empathy, compassion, cooperation, and social bonding are just beginning to be understood. The relatively young wellness movement with ambitious goals of fostering and maintaining cognition throughout our lives seems to understand this. Unfortunately, it's largely been marginalized as quote-unquote alternative and not given the benefit of mainstream concern. So how do we get taken seriously? How does well? <laughs> it's a yeah. lot here. I love this quote. Yeah, you know, it's 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 so interesting for me uh, as a scientist and, and now a technologist um, who also recognizes the immense value of being in nature um, and sitting with someone technology free and having a conversation and of physical exercise. I mean, I engage in all of these activities. Uh, I think that they're critical for our health and that probably the biggest challenge of technology is, as I sort of described it here, the displacement from it. And the last thing I'd ever want are for the things that we create ourselves in our you know, companies and, and, and my research center to detract from that type of uh, just healthy lifestyle activities. 
Um, as a matter of fact, we prescribe our game at a certain dosage. We dose our game, um, which is it's true. You can't actually have a clinical indication without a dosage. Uh, so uh, a child right now in our ADHD studies, let's say, and I assume that we'll, we'll have a very similar pathway when we become prescribable, can only play it for 30 minutes a day. And they can only play it five days a week, not seven days a week, not 45 minutes a day. The game shuts out and will not allow more engagement than that. And I think we have to constantly return uh, to our roots as humans where we interact with a certain environment that we're denied a, all, you know, frequently now and use technology as a tool uh, but not as the sole way that we interact with our environment. This, this amazing um, elevation of, of our minds and, and our bodies by interacting with each other and the natural world. And if we are denied that, we're just in a lot of trouble. Sure. To me, it's also it's guys like you have MDs and PhDs after their names who say, this is good for you. You know, these, these more Eastern, holistic uh, treatments or experiences, when guys like you with those letters after the name say, hey, this is good for you. That means something. Yeah, well, I'm glad then, because I don't think it's just good for you. I think it's absolutely critical. I mean, if we abandon those aspects of what it means to be human, we will will, will degrade. So um, what is your wellness? Like, if we're going to take out the, the what you do in the lab, like, what, what would Adam's, like, wellness prescription be for someone? Like, is it X amount of, you know, minutes in nature? Day? Like, what's that, like, non-negotiable, if you will? Yeah, you know, I, th- I, I think it varies you know, a, a lot of it is hard to prescribe with like clear numbers and hours because different people are different and their needs are going to be different. Um, I'm much more into personalized approaches and you know understanding what works for different people because it will vary. But in general, uh, people in my mind need some physical exercise um, every month. They you know ideally daily at least walking and moving your body. Um, and there's lots of data to show the benefits of even low level physical exercise. Um, you need cognitive challenge. That cognitive challenge may come in many different formats. It could be from your job. It could be the type of games that we're creating. It could be from social interactivity. And I'd put in cognitive challenge uh, social interaction, um, real face-to-face interaction with people. We know that loneliness, which is like an epidemic in the older population. It's a killer. It's a killer. It yeah. decreases longevity. It, it's not subtle. Many meta-analysis support this. So I put that in that, in that realm of, of cognitive challenge and interactivity with other people. Um, and then the stress management and, you know, all of this, you know, comes together on how do you achieve these things. And again, with stress management, I'd like to say it doesn't mean zero stress. In your well, life. I like that you use the word management and not reduction. Yeah. It's like you can't, your problems, I always say your, your problems don't go away. They just change. Totally. And you learn how to manage them better. And the goal is not to have no stress. Like right. that, that. Well, the upside of stress, Kelly McGott, you know, that book. Is, totally. Yeah. Stress. I mean, we respond to stress. Our brains need to be pushed. We can't be comfortable all the time it's just not how we work it's not the homeostasis that we establish requires challenge and so you don't want no stress you just don't want the helpless stress that's chronic just don't want to feel like i'm swimming in shit every yeah. day and all that, day yeah, yeah that will that will destroy you yes. and we know that it has negative effects through different hormone systems on the brain directly so there's this helpless stress that's chronic that's very dangerous for us and then there's the healthy challenge that keeps us you know uh, responding and and you know and, and it's good for us and then the other thing that I'd, I'd like to mention is sleep 
we've gained, we've gained a lot of understanding uh, as neuroscientists and other other researchers um, on the benefits of sleep, in, not just on the the body but on the mind. When it comes to stress itself, but attention and memory, uh, and we abuse sleep, I think, very frequently because we feel. You know, it's you're unconscious during it, and it's not like the the mainstay of what of what your life is, uh, and it's not always clear what the long term costs of denying yourself sleep are. And I think that this is a very particularly poignant um, intersection of technology and development and growing up as children, when uh, you have enough challenges of knowing too much information about what's going on around you that you're not participating in, and then your sleep is also disrupted. Uh, so I would say, you know, how putting together those five ingredients of physical challenge, cognitive challenge, stress management, sleep management, and nutrition, which I didn't say, but that should be on the list as well. Um, and, you know, I feel like we're at the stage as, as a scientific community uh, to say we're, we know that these are the ingredients in the recipe. But all the details of the recipe is something that we're still working on. What about nutrition specifically? Nutrition, nutrition has, has, as a scientist, um, it's been the most challenging for me to think about because the type of studies that I tend to rely on are really, really challenging in the nutrition world um, because the, the double-blinded, randomized, yes. control longitudinal studies are just really, really hard to do. Um, and so... Because of that, a lot of the more correlational data leads to conclusions that leads the systems that give advice to change, seemingly change what their advice is every decade, yes. which leads the public to be like, what? That was, eggs were bad. Eggs are good. good yeah. You know, it's, it's really confusing. And, you know, I'd say the data that I see that has garnered the most evidence is, I guess, what people would call the Mediterranean diet. Um, and it, it, it's largely, you know, in the world that I spend most of my time studying, which, which is aging, that the benefits of that diet of, you know, largely fish and nuts and legumes and fruits and olive oil and red wine. It's on the yeah, diet. I know. I know you like red wine. <laughs> Everyone's red wine. favorite. You know, that that diet has been associated with better um, brains later in life. So usually I try to, you know, as much as I can, keep my diet in that general uh, uh, vicinity. And what role does purpose play? I feel like intent is is a critical part in this, that having a goal-directed life, um, you know, I put that in, in the category of cognitive challenge, of yeah. not, not being swept through life. I, it even goes back to earlier in our discussion about taking control over your technology, having a purpose of why you're engaging with something, as opposed to the fact that it's just calling you um, and playing upon very your, your, you know, your ancient reward systems to grab your attention. I think that, per, you know, and, and there's data to show that, that purpose and intent and goals is uh, another really important part of st keeping a healthy brain. Sure. So where is this conversation going with what you're like? What is the future of wellness and technology and where are you taking it? Where, where do you see this conversation in like a year from now, three years from now? What, what's exciting to you? I'd say what's most exciting to me are the things that I'm working on all day long. Um, you know, I, I find all of this really interesting. I'd love to figure out ways of getting people in nature in a natural way, not just relying on virtual reality, which I spend a lot of time on. And personally, I, I engage in as much of it as I can. And I do nature photography, so I'm, I'm out in the outdoors a lot. But the, the thing I'm most excited about is showing the world that technology can be designed 
thoughtfully um, in a way that is uh, uh, fun, that, that produces things that are fun, uh, that are not you know painful to engage in, but enjoyable to engage in, and actually help us and improve how we function and the things that we care about most as humans. Um, I don't feel like technology has really done that yet, and I think it has great promise to do that. I think we have to take back the conversation and say, this is a tool of us humans. And if it's not really serving us, then we got to change it. And I think that we'll see the power of what I always like to say, AI for HI, right? Artificial intelligence should be directed at improving human intelligence, not just at offloading human intelligence. That's not actually not that exciting sure. to me. I think that it can be used as a tool to make our brains more effective and, and higher powered, which hopefully would lead not just to better attention and memory, but better wisdom and empathy and compassion. I think the world needs that so dramatically. So I think if we could turn our technological tools into ways of helping children manage depression and anxiety, you know, which we know leads to suicide at ever increasing rates, maybe even before it reaches that level, like detect it and help them manage it, help them feel compassion for each other, even as they're growing up, um, help us keep our attention where we want it. If technology can help us direct our attention, um, help with memory impairment as we get older, um, all of these things that we have just almost done nothing for, that, that, that's what gets me excited. So do you think you're a guy, you're in the Bay Area, and, and you're definitely loved by some of the technology titans, whether it's you know, Ev Williams, Twitter founder, Mark Benioff, and Alan's time, but like real, po real power players in technology who do have the resources to you know, make change. Do you think one of the reasons why they admire your work is they say, like, here's a guy who we know technology, and here's a guy who can help solve some of the problems we're aware of? Like, what is it about? Like, there's something about, like, everyone loves you. Like, <laughs> everyone loves you in the Valley. Well, you know, I, I love technology, you know, and, and here you have a, a whole uh, community of technologists that, you know, all those people you mentioned uh, mean really well. You know, they have, they have very positive thoughts about what technology could do to society. Um, as, you know, I've, you know, like Chris Cox at, at Facebook, another yep. good friend of mine, um, when I sit and interact with all of those people that you named as, as friends and we're just, you know, together, you know, having a glass of wine or having coffee, uh, we're talking about how to make the world better. And I embrace the technology that they've helped pioneer and, and, and see great potential in it to help us. So they care about the world. They want the world to be better. Um, and I believe that. Uh, deeply. And so they look at me as an ally, I, I think, and as someone that can help them accomplish their life mission of using technology to help people. And maybe it didn't do exactly what they wanted it to do, but sure. uh, there's always room to improve. I love that. Well, I love that they, I love that they pay attention to you. <laughs> so what keeps you up at night? What has you worried? And then what has you excited every day when you wake up in the morning? Let's see. Um, I think what what keeps me up at night is 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 the worry that maybe what we've you know we've allowed not just technology but how how we behave and interact as humans to just sort of go out of control. You know the news feed. I I mean it's just I can't even read it now. It's just like a a horror story in every way, no matter what side of the political table. Natural you disasters, politics. It's just, you know, it's you know and, and this is what we consume, this like really aggressive 
negative messaging all day. And I, I just really worry, um, you know, how far we've gone and how we can really pull back and really, you know, sort of regain our humanity in many ways. That's, you know, I, I think the worry that I have. Um, in terms of what makes me excited, it's it's creating. You know, I work with artists and musicians and storytellers. I, I work with my wife, who's who's my my partner at uh, at our center at UCSF, and you know, I, I work with all these uh, brilliant people that come from different worlds all together uh, to accomplish this goal of making sure we haven't gone too far down that path, and that we can restore our minds and our humanity. So that's what makes me most excited. Any advice to everyone? You know, you're you're talking to a uh, very wellness-oriented crowd here at Mind Buddy Green. Any advice for people listening who, you know, want to want to make a difference, want to you know improve the, you know, cognitive well-being of themselves and their loved ones? Yeah, you know, I think that keep uh, keep at it. <laughs> um, I, I love this community. Uh, I, you know, I have my own sort of unique approach into it through tech, but uh, you know, I, I value it all and. I would say, and I and I see this on. I sort of say the same thing to people that are on the other side of the coin, whether they work for pharmaceutical companies or big tech or you know anything that doesn't seem like it's like in what we think of as the wellness community. That you know you need to have compassion for each other and understand uh, sort of the habits that people have formed, and and that everyone uh, might not think exactly the same way you do, and there may be room to not have someone replace everything they do in their lives we just bring a little bit of it into their lives even if it's like understanding the value of just like a small period of mindfulness at work of just closing your eyes for a little and focusing on your breath or the engagement in nature even in short dose you know doses and not to and on either side of those to feel like you have to have a complete convert to to save someone and so yeah i would i'd keep a healthy balance in in how to message the type of things that that we think are valuable so if you could uh, go back in time and give young Adam advice when he was first starting out in med school, what advice would that be? Uh, I, I think it would be just to be fearless, just to not, not get caught up in the system so much that you're not afraid to challenge it, um, even if it means you know, being left of center and being sort of that, that, uh, that, that one that's not sort of playing by the rules. I love that. Be fearless. Don't be afraid to... Yeah. challenge the system I mean you, you know you just you can't make a really meaningful enduring impact if you have too much fear to not challenge the status quo you just have to do it amen to that Adam thanks thank so you. much thank you thanks guys thank you.